Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to inform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for Concord, or our Christian unity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Pastor David Weiss. He is the pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Evansville, Indiana. Pastor Weiss, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Always a great joy to have you on. We used to be in the same area. My first parish ministry was in Evansville, Indiana there. And one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on for this show is this is something that you and I have talked about as we were in the same area. I can remember conversations, although that seems like a lifetime ago. I mean, that was like five years ago now since I've been in the same by circuit together. And I know that we've had conversations about this. They've always been really wonderful All my conversations with you are always very thought-provoking and well thought out. And so when I wanted to do this episode, you were definitely my guy for this, just because, again, I know that you've thought through these things and we've had discussions on these. And I also want to, for our listeners, just share that this episode, today's episode, is really a second part of sort of the setup for this new series that we're doing here on Concord Matters, looking to the Book of Concord for the confessional principles that guide our Christian life together. And so in this series, we will be considering why Concord matters for the worship and liturgy of the church, why Concord matters for for Lutheran hymnody, why Concord matters for Lutheran education, why Concord matters for receiving pastoral counsel, and so much more. So please continue to tune in week after week for these various topics and themes. I'm really excited to address these. I think this is a very practical for our Christian life together way to look at what our Lutheran confessions, this great collection of Lutheran theology grounded in scripture, how it informs our Christian life together. But in order to set all of that up, I think that there are at least two things. There's probably a lot of things, really, that we could address and talk about. But there are really two things that I thought were really important in order to lay a foundation for what will really permeate all of the discussions in the various topics and themes that we'll be bringing up in this series. And the first one we addressed last week with Pastor Finnern in Concord Matters for the Care of Souls. And that's where we really wanted to make the point that our Lutheran confessions, of course, connected with that chief doctrine of the church, the article upon which the church stands or falls, justification, it all relates to what we called the care of souls, that the Christian care of the soul is ultimately what is in focus for all of these documents of our Lutheran confession, this theology. It's not just doing theology for the sake of theology. It's not just abstract academic work, which sometimes people think of theology or the Book of Concord in that sense. But it really is focused on the care of the Christian souls. And so I really do believe that this is a very practical understanding and application that we want to have in focus here of our Lutheran confessions. And then the second thing that I think really lays an important foundation for how we have these discussions is that as we go through these different things, drawing together all of the Book of Concord to inform our discussion of these different matters of our Concord together, we're also going to see that maybe at times we don't have concord with certain Christians, or it's sometimes difficult to have concord. And so I thought that today's show, Why Concord Matters for Concord, which is a little redundant, we could just say Concord Matters, because it does. (laughs) And this intro music and things like that certainly lays that foundation. It's mattered in scripture to Paul and to Jesus, it says in our intro and things like that. We agree that Concord Matters, but then how do we address that as we look to have Christian harmony 
or we might say unity within the Christian church and our confession of the gospel. And so, Pastor Weist, again, I know this is, we've many times had these sorts of discussions. And so, I guess as we jump into this then, this is a good place to start maybe then. What are we talking about when we talk about having Christian concord, or we might say Christian unity? Again, first, thanks for having me on. And yeah, I've enjoyed having these conversations with you too over the years. For me, it's it, it became, I think, more of an issue because after a few years, about six years in other places, I came to my hometown, a fair number of Lutheran churches. And I had gotten to know people in all of those churches when I was growing up here in the Evansville area. And so our life together, our unity was kind of an obvious thing. I guess I expected certain things when I came because I knew people from all these churches. I was friendly with all these people. I knew their families. And so it, it sort of changed my perspective coming back as a pastor and saying, okay, how do we relate to one another, all these different congregations? And that became a natural segue is not the right word, but it, it, I'm going to use it, a natural segue towards this issue of concord. But it is, what we're talking about is life together. We want community. We want to have a life together. And what should that look like? What does a healthy life together look like in the church? And really, that is what you've always talked about. It's just, it's not always framed that way. I, I Just to give you an example, I did chapel at Evansville Lutheran School yesterday, and, and I gave them the opportunity to ask me questions because I'm only there once a year to do chapel services. And I said, go ahead and ask me some questions and I'll answer them so, so we can get to know one another a little bit. And one of the boys said, what do you enjoy talking about? And I don't mean theology, which automatically made me laugh. You know, we kind of put theology in a box, but the reality is the Book of Concord is all about unity. It's all about our life together and what a healthy life together in the church looks like. So, yeah, it's something that I've been preoccupied with, and I sure do enjoy the, appreciate the opportunity to be able to come and, and be a part of that with you today. Yeah, I might just even jump in there a little bit, too. And yeah, it was definitely kind of behind our conversations because I was actually the pastor to your dad, one of the pastors to your dad, right. which was a unique situation. And I think there's something in the Bible about a prophet in his own hometown, you know, and you kind of just took the bull by the horns there. And I think you have a very faithful ministry. But again, yeah, as we dig into these, the book of Concord and so forth, and I agree with you, that has been the approach because it is the approach of the Book of Concord. That's what the word means, right? Agreement and Christian confession, we say, or, or our harmony together. And it's all got to be centered on God's word. And yet you feel this tension. And again, this is what Jesus faced in his own hometown, right? Is they thought they knew him. Mm, right. And he says, no, no, you, you've been missing the point. Here's my word. And so, yeah, that has been the focus always of the Book of Concord. And it's been there and a part of our discussion. But sometimes we do see that, as I think you emphasize there, and that's an excellent point, too, that as we're in our Lutheran schools, I grew up in a Lutheran school, and this is definitely not a knock on Lutheran schools. We highly commend Lutheran schools and Lutheran education. We're going to have a whole show on Concord Matters for Lutheran education in this series. And yet I grew up with that thinking, too, a little bit of, you know, this theology is something that's kind of abstract, and we can even compartmentalize things to, okay, well, you know, we talk about our Christian faith in the religion class, or at chapel. And if that interests me, that's fine. But how do we see that permeate our life together? And part of the focus of this series will certainly be our life together within the church, but also our life together outside of the church. And we're going to address some of those themes and topics as well. Really, it's our life together in all of life as God would have us led by his word. And that's certainly present in the Lutheran confessions. And so how we wrap our minds around this idea of concord and unity throughout all of life really is a great way to approach this topic and something we've engaged before. I, I hate to say this, but I think even within the church, even among us as Christians, even in our familial relationships, we've fallen into this trap of really treating everything like an accident, including relationships, including our life together. And it's it's almost easier to get out of a relationship than it is to, to initiate one. We can't treat relationships like accidents. Instead, we look at them as the scriptures talk about marriage, what God has joined together, let no man rend asunder. So the idea, I think, is this, is when we talk about unity, we always talk about it from this perspective of something that we need to create instead of recognizing that God has joined us together. And it's less an issue of creating, and it's more an issue of identifying. 
God has brought us together, and it's it, this isn't an accident. And so when we look at theology, what we're really looking at is what fundamentally ties us together and keeps us together. And so sometimes we act like we can walk away, and the reality is we really can't, at least not without there being even more profound consequences than losing that one relationship. Because this has to do, my relationship, for example, with you is directly tied to my relationship that I have with my Heavenly Father. God has joined us together in Christ. We are the body of Christ. And I think if we can look at it from this perspective of we are not trying to create something, we're trying to identify and better understand something that we've been incorporated into. I think that's a much more helpful way of looking at Concord. That's really excellently stated and something that comes to my mind a lot and again has come up at various times on this show too is that sometimes our work as pastors or within Christian congregations can get so dedicated to programs or things like that that try to create a unity and a sense of unity. We'll even hear that kind of language thrown around and so forth among our members and within our congregations. And it's like we're constantly trying to build something, right? And again, not that programs themselves are inherently bad. It's a necessary function of our life together that we will have certain programs and things like that. But again, how do we understand that? And I think you stated that really well, that it is a unity that is created by God himself. It is a unity that is found in God himself. And his word leads us in that unity. And that is, again, the focus of the whole Lutheran confessions is drawing together these truths confessed in scripture and within the church throughout time. And we're still confessing them today. And so that's really what I'll call the really positive way, you know, in the sense of the true way to form our thinking about what it is to have Christian unity. Yeah, it's more we are exploring the gift of unity that we have been given than God has placed on us the expectation of creating something out of nothing, which is a terrible burden. And thankfully, it's not a burden he's given us. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And we're going to dig deeper into that as we go throughout the show today. But on the other side of that, what I'll call kind of the negative side of this, and here I'm kind of playing off of that logical rhetoric approach that we've seen at different times, especially in the formula of Concord, where you have the positive or affirmative theses and the negative theses. And so kind of my negative theses on this is that then if there is unity, there's obviously then also disunity. And we've certainly seen that again. Definitely the formula of Concord is very specific in pointing out these are things that we reject and condemn because they're against scripture. And so we've just recently covered that as we've gone through the formula of Concord on this show just a couple months ago. And so we're going to see that and Again, we see that within the Christian church and within individual congregations as well, that there's this tension when there is disunity and there can be a lot of arguing and a lot of controversy and folks can get upset and leave congregations and things like that. Again, we'll dig deeper into this as well as the show goes on, both this positive and negative, but just to frame it at the beginning here. So how do we handle, how do we think about the disunity that is created on the kind of negative side of desiring to have concord together? The hardest thing in the world for me, I'm not just speaking as a pastor, just as a Christian, the hardest thing in the world for me is trying to figure out what is a good argument <laughs> and what is something where I should just bite my tongue. It is so dif difficult sometimes. But I do know this, the idea that we will have unity simply just by no longer arguing is way too simplistic. In fact, we can be silent, and I, I bet you everybody listening, if they stop for a moment and think about it, can think of an example in their own lives where there was disunity because they were tired of fighting or tired of arguing. They just stopped communicating on those particular topics. My question to you then is, if you have something in mind is, has the fact that you have stopped arguing really created a stronger sense of unity between you and that other person? And the answer, I know personally, is no. You're still not unified on that thing, on that topic, on that belief. And if it's a deeply held belief, that makes, at least for me, it makes me profoundly sad that we can't be unified in, in that particular thing. I don't want to argue. Sometimes arguing or obnoxiousness is the problem. 
But there are things that are worth debating and getting to the bottom of. We can't stop pursuing truth, even if it means sometimes we're being contentious with one another or it becomes contentious. It's worth it. And again, we see that over and over again. Our example, our church fathers in, in the book of Concord. There are some things that we have to pursue, and it may turn into an argument from time to time, but it's worth it because there's some things we have to stand together on if we're truly going to be unified. Yeah, I think, again, really well said and brings out to what I think of with this, again, as our Lutheran confessions themselves do, going back to Scripture, we certainly see Jesus talk very clearly about this matter, right? I mean, Matthew 10 is one that comes to my mind where he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And he even goes on to discuss there's going to be separation between mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws and fathers and sons. And as I already shared, I had the privilege of being one of the pastors to your father, not an issue in ministry to your father. I, I very much miss having your father as especially one of my trustees. He was excellent in that. But we do recognize this and we do see that play out in the church that there are definitely struggles within families, within Christian congregations. And a lot of times it does come down between a pastor and his congregation. And ultimately, I've kind of learned a certain piece, if you will, that what Jesus assures us of is that our unity, as you well framed on the positive side, the affirmative side, is that our unity is found in God, in Christ, in his word. But then on the flip side, how we understand Jesus's words, that there's also going to be times of disunity, is that our disunity is also found because there is not agreement on his word. There is division about holding to the truth of his word. And a lot of times, and this is a really gross oversimplification of it, obviously, there are a lot of dynamics, namely the dynamic that a pastor is a sinner and people are sinners, and it's a bunch of sinners trying to live together in community, <laughs> which is always a challenge. And that's why we need to learn to live in forgiveness. But it's also, again, where we need to go back to unity. But my gross oversimplification is a lot of times the division I see, especially when it's between a pastor and congregation, is that a lot of times the congregation is just wanting everybody to get along, kind of in a worldly unity, if you will, as you talked about. And, you know, we can just not argue and just let everybody think what they think. And a lot of times, in part because we're pastors, it's how we make our living. It's what we're called to do. And we see this with the prophets and apostles. We're grounded in God's word. That's what we're called to preach, teach, and proclaim. And a lot of times the disunity, the conflict, the things that come up in a congregation, especially when it's between pastor and people, is because, again, it's not grounded in God's word. That's not where we're having our conversations. We just want people to get along, and we want to have a big, successful church and things, but it's not necessarily always tied to faithfulness to God's word. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I guess the primary thing is this. As I was preparing for this episode, you know, we use confession in two different ways. We talk about our confession of faith and we talk about confession and absolution. And the reality is our unity really, the, the foundation of our unity is confession absolution. It's when I'm wrong, I repent. And when I've wronged you, you say, I forgive you. And all of that happens in the context of Christ, who said, Father, forgive him from the cross. And he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made clean, made righteous. So really, we said the unity's already been created. It's a matter of identifying it. That's what Christ did on the cross. That's what he incorporated me into in my baptism. And the unity is really found on repentance and forgiveness. The other kind of confession that we talk about is our confession of faith, which is the primary conversation that we're having today. Why would we risk getting along in order to debate our confession of faith? Well, because the center of our confession of faith is that other confession that is followed by absolution. The center of our faith is Jesus Christ. We don't have any unity apart from him and apart from the gift of forgiveness that he's given us. So, you know, when I fight maybe with you desperately— to hold on to Christ, it's for our relationship. Does that make sense? I mean, that may have been confusing, but ultimately it's the forgiveness that establishes the unity. But it is our clear, pure doctrine that compels people to confession and absolution, that compels people to the forgiveness of sins. And, and so I get it. I mean, you and I are getting along fine until you tell me that I need to repents because of my sin. And in my head, I may think, you know, you're really messing with our relationship. Our relationship's being torn up because you're pointing out my sin. You're saying that I need to repent. 
And the relationship has been challenged, but it wasn't by your call of repentance. It was by my sin. And there's a solution to that challenge, and that's the forgiveness of sins. So if I continue in unrepentance, really, it's not you who's challenging the unity. It's me who's challenging the unity. Because when we're talking about Christian unity, we're talking about repentance and forgiveness. It's all found in the forgiveness of sins. So as we continue to talk about doctrine, we're really talking about this because our doctrine points us to Christ, and Christ gives us the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, I think it's the relationship of the word confession and why we use it for both confession of sin and confession of the faith. To confess means to same say, to say the same thing. So when God says something in his word, we say, yeah, I agree with that, which is what we do in confession of sin. He shows us our sin through the law. So we can talk about law gospel here. He shows us our sin. And this is a really helpful way to go and call one another to repentance. Certainly the prophets, apostles, John the Baptist and Jesus himself just simply came out and said, repent at different times. And it often didn't go really well for them. And it doesn't go well for us today when we call one another to repentance. But I've definitely learned this in my almost 10 years now of being a pastor is that It's really helpful if you have an understanding of what it is to confess when you go to address confession of sin, that really it is an opportunity to confess the faith. And so when I call them to repentance, so say you and I, we have our relationship, and as we're in that relationship, there's sin against me or against God's word. And as a brother in Christ, let alone a brother pastor, I go to you and I'm looking to call you to repentance. And we can talk about this a little bit later. I can be really argumentative about that and get a very negative response and just say, Pastor Weiss, repent. You're doing this wrong. That's probably not going to be received well. That doesn't mean that it's wrong to do. Again, certainly prophets, apostles, and Jesus himself have done that. And we have a clear basis on that. But it can be really helpful to our brother in winning them to repentance and faith, which is ultimately what we want to do. If I go to you with God's word and I say, I think we need to consider repentance because here's what God's word has to say about what you've done. And how do you understand what you've done in absent kind of a specific idea? I don't want to take us down a side tangent and talking about that, but you know, just say that it's a matter of bearing false witness against your neighbor, an eighth commandment issue. I can just simply come to you with what God's word tells us in the eighth commandment And just knowing our catechism really well, that simple explanation of knowing that and going through that with you is enough grounding in God's word to lead you in repentance, to see your sin and to confess it. And then you're just same saying, and then at the same time, you're confessing the faith. You're saying, yes, this is my sin. And that leads me into confessing my sin and confessing my faith then that Jesus died for this sin too. And there's forgiveness and there's a way forward in that. And ultimately, that brings our unity of relationship together, even as it brings unity within the church of our confession of, yeah, these things really do matter. What we say about the Eighth Commandment uh, and the small catechism, the large catechism, about law, gospel, all of those various articles of our Christian doctrine that are confessed in our Lutheran confessions become ultimately practical again for how we live our Christian life in repentance and faith. Yeah, that's great. I like how you brought in the, you know, we were using one another, our relationship as an example, but then you brought in the congregational life and the life of the church. And and I think that's one of the things I mentioned when we first started about not treating relationships like accidents. God brought us together, but he didn't just bring us together into a friendship. Again, he incorporated us into the body of Christ. And so if I treat our relationship um, like it really doesn't matter that much, it's not worth reconciling when reconciliation is needed, I need to understand that that has a profound implication. If I walk away from that relationship with a brother in Christ, then that has a profound effect on the congregational life as well. We see that all the time with broken relationships. You know, I have a small congregation. We notice everything. <laughs> you know, we feel everything. It's like a bad car. <laughs> you feel every bump. We feel every, and I, I like that, actually. That's one of the things I like about a small congregation. It's hard for people to fall between the cracks. But when in a small congregation, when a brokenness between two people, it has rippling effects very quickly and very obviously for the whole congregation. So this isn't just about the relationship with that other person that maybe you've decided you can live without it. It has to do with the health and the well-being of that entire congregation of people. 
The other thing about what you said, which I really appreciate, is it really echoed one of the primary passages that I was looking at in preparations is Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. And there's a lot there, and I'm not going to share it all. But I would encourage the listeners, if you're interested in this topic and want to pursue it further, read Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. And one of the things that Paul says that you were definitely echoing was, he said, you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And I have a prayer that I use sometimes for meetings when I feel like unity needs to be, we need to remind one another to be careful with our words. <laughs> if it's if I'm anticipating contention, it's a prayer that CFW Walther wrote. And he talks about this eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit. And that's kind of the first paragraph of the prayer. The second paragraph of the prayer he puts that in contrast, our eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit. He contrasts that with the prayer we we ask God to curb the efforts of Satan and of our own wicked flesh and blood. Fill us again with a spirit of peace. So, you know, as the Christian, we have God willing, we have this eagerness to maintain this unity that is a gift to us. Because guarantee you, that, as Walter wrote, the devil sees that jewel, that gift that God has given us, and he wants to destroy it. And quite honestly, our own wicked flesh wants our own way, and, and it's okay to see it dashed upon the rocks as well. So that eagerness, I think it shows itself in gentleness, which is what you were getting at. We're trying to get on the same page here, and we need to be patient to do that. And we certainly, we need God's word to do that. Absolutely. Walkabouts with Walther, always welcome on this show, as you well know. I try to provide at least one each time. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was really such a faithful pastor and so foundational for him. Are these Lutheran confessions permeating his pastoral theology, his leadership as the first partisan of our synod? It really does become very, very practical. And so anyway, we could go on and on and talk about all this. And we're, we're certainly going to have some more practical application and engaging some listener questions that we've had come in and so forth as we continue on in the second part of the show. We're going to take a break here, but as we come back from break, we want to pick up, and as the Lutheran confessions themselves do, where are some places in Scripture that talk about our unity together as we've kind of laid that foundation simply for us here in this first half? Where in Scripture does it talk about that? And then also highlight some things from the Lutheran confessions themselves, and then we'll kind of bracket that at the end again as well with some practical application of this theology as it permeates our life together in Christ. You're listening to Concord Matters on Join Christian friends of New Americans for their golf benefit at Greenbrier Hills Country Club Monday, October 12th. Registration and box lunch at 11 a.m. 18-hole shotgun start at 12 noon. Special price for ladies and church workers. Register at cfna-stl.org slash golf. Not a golfer? Register for our 5 p.m. hospitality hour. Please help us reach out to refugees and immigrants with the good news of Jesus as we help them with English and life skills. Register for golf or a sponsorship. cfna-stl.org slash golf. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Weiss from Concordia Lutheran Church in Evansville, Indiana. And just before the break, Pastor Weiss brought in this excellent section from Scripture from Ephesians 4. And especially I like how you highlighted there for us that wonderful section from Ephesians 4 that talks about eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. And as we continue talking about why Concord matters for Concord, for our unity within the Christian church, as you framed really well for us, it's a unity that not that we create, we're eager to maintain it as Ephesians 4 says, but it's not a unity that we create, as you laid out so well for us. It's a unity that is found in God, in Christ, in his word. It is created by God for us to live in. And I think that informs, again, we can just go in so many directions in talking about our Lutheran confessions here. It informs how we view good works and, and those sorts of things as well. Our confession on those matters are, you know, these are good works that are created by God and that we just walk in them, really. I mean, it's not our works that do anything or accomplish anything on our own. We live in them. 
and especially the good work of living in Christian unity, I think plays in really well here too, and is a right understanding then of Ephesians 4. And I said that as we come back from break, we're going to just lay out the scripture passages as our Lutheran confessions do, and then also some passages, certainly not all of them, but some passages from the Lutheran confessions from the Book of Concord that address this matter of unity as well. And we're certainly going to get into that, but I think a good way to transition into that, especially with Ephesians 4 in the back of the mind, I do want to bring in this one listener question. This comes from Jim in Florida, and I think this is an excellent question, and I'm just going to read his question, but I have received a lot of questions over the last several years as I've been the host of this show that all relate to the same idea, and it just seems like it keeps coming up and is a very, very important question that we should talk about when it comes to matters of our Christian unity, our concord within the Christian church. And so this is a great question to get us into this. So again, this is from Jim. It says, Pastor Smith, I am dealing with a person who calls everyone who isn't a confessional Lutheran, a heretic. And he gives the example of, say, like John MacArthur. He says, can you give me some references in the Concordia where the heterodox are still regarded as Christians? In other words, heterodoxy doesn't damn, but heresy does. And he says, I am used to Reformed, and the Reformed have a phrase that is used for a new Calvinist. They would call him a cage Calvinist. Uh, Pastor Weish, you and I have engaged some different reform folks, and I've at least encountered this in those conversations with those same mutual friends as well. So I'm sure you have as well. But so Jim is familiar with this as well, this idea of a cage Calvinist, which is basically the reform use this, that they should be caged for a couple years until they settle down. Because it just, it does. There's something about, you know, you get passionate about something and you just want to, you want to fight for it. <laughs> and that's what he says. And so he says, you know, I think I might be dealing with a cage Lutheran. And I don't think he means this offensively, right? Jim doesn't mean this offensively, but he says, you know, just seems to want to fight. And I recognize that again in the Christian church broadly among Lutherans and Calvinists. And, and he goes on with the question. He says, thanks for the Saxon Lutheran broadcast. Uh, so that was a couple weeks ago when we went through the Saxon visitation articles, which again is against the Reformed in particular. And he says that he heard in there, and I did say this, he said, if I recall, you referred to the Reformed as brothers somewhere near the end. And so thank you very much, Jim, for your question. I think this, again, is it's a very common question that I get. I have tried to bring it up at different times and different episodes as we go through. We might even just do in this series, I might tag it in there somewhere, just how we engage, where is the line between heretic and heterodox? Maybe we could just do a whole hour on that alone. But as it relates to what we've already laid out here, kind of the affirmative or positive theses and negative theses, our desire is to have concord, Christian unity that's found in God through Christ and his word. But then there is this negative side that there is obviously then disunity, disagreement with regards to God's word. And so I think this is a related issue to at least what we're talking about here in terms of Concord. How do we deal with Jim's question, which again, very common question here, Pastor Weiss, when we come at it from Scripture and our Lutheran confessions, what are some ways of understanding and engaging this tension that we see go on in the church? Great. Thank you, Jim, for the question. It's going to be hard work. I, I, I think I'll start that way. I don't think there's you know, there's not a, a Band-Aid bumper sticker sort of way of approaching this. It's complex. You're dealing with individuals. I think that's helpful to keep in mind, but it's a challenge. It, it definitely is. You can't say without question there's a difference between someone who is heterodox and someone who is a heretic. Having said that, for the person who is wrong about a particular doctrine, for the person who is heterodox but still Christian, when they are confronted with that wrong teaching, it may feel like they're being treated like a heretic. Because really, we treat wrong teaching very seriously because ultimately, heterodox teaching leads to heresy. Maybe not for that particular individual. Maybe it'll be a generation or two generations later. But wrong teaching leads to heresy. And we can even go past it. It, it leads to unbelief. It leads to broken fellowship. It leads to people walking away from the body of Christ. And so it has to be dealt with seriously. So sometimes the heterodox person it may not be that Christian brother or sister, that pastor, it may not be that they're looking for a fight. It may just be that they see the seriousness of bad teaching, unscriptural teaching. 
Oh, I, I, that's the first thing I'd say. But honestly, Jim, every almost everything else, um, I heard your question ahead of time and almost everything else that I've prepared is kind of with your question in mind. So if it looks like we've set aside your question, we haven't, but there's a few steps that we need to talk to. The first thing is with the formula of Concord, there's two things that are mentioned when it comes to unity and preserving that unity. Again, it's a gift that's been given to us. What can we do to preserve it? Unity is preserved, the formula of Concord points out, when pure beneficial teaching is taught. But it's also necessary that those who contradict that teaching, that they're not allowed to continue in that false teaching. And again, that's why sometimes the person who is heterodox may feel like they're being treated like a heretic, because this is how unity is preserved. And we mentioned just before break that we we're going to look at some passages. If you look at the very first part of the Formula of Concord, the passages that I have are presented for you there. There's a section for 1 Timothy 3 from Titus 1. But especially the, the ones that I would commend to you are, are John chapter 10 and Jeremiah 15. In both of these, we have the imagery of the shepherd. And I, I think that's a really helpful imagery. Um, the shepherd taking care of the sheep. And there are two parts to that. And that's what the form of Concord touched on that I read a moment ago. The shepherd feeds the sheep, but the shepherd also has to ward off the wolves. And both of these things are essential to maintaining the flock. And it's, it's also essential to maintaining unity in the church. I agree with you here, Pastor Weiss, that one of the kind of going back to what we talked about in the first half of the show, one of the things that we have to think about here is once again, what does the word confession mean? And again, as it relates to the confession of sins, but also the confession of the faith, it is the same say what Scripture says. And anytime there's deviation from that, that is what makes a wolf a wolf. And oftentimes, because they're somewhat using Scripture, twisting Scripture, that's what the wolf in sheep's clothing looks like. That's why you don't necessarily notice them. And so I often talk about the tension this way, and I, I've definitely brought this up on the show several times, is if you think about our Christian doctrine as sort of a wheel, especially the old-fashioned wagon wheels, if you will, the old covered wagon wheels, or the wheel of a bicycle, and you have all these spokes coming into the hub, and the hub is Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's the hub of the Christian faith. Or as the Athanasian Creed says, unless you hold this Catholic faith, you cannot be saved. And so that's a stern statement. And so it is very concerning whenever some of the spokes coming into that wheel, which I would say are confession of articles of the Christian faith, it's really concerning when some of those start falling out. And again, maybe we can do a whole show on this of how many spokes do you have to be missing or what certain spokes <laughs> need to be missing in order to call them a heretic. An interesting thought experiment that I don't know that I'm ready to answer right now. But it is very concerning when you see those spokes missing. And so once again, I think it comes back to much like when we go to a brother trying to get a confession of sin to call them to repentance, it really helps to understand it's ultimately a confession of God's word. And so that's where I think the approach of the Lutheran confessions is really great. They just come in and they say, hey, here's what God's word says. And here's what the church has confessed about what God's word says. And you seem to be in disagreement with that. And so it reveals the disunity. And so at least to some extent on this, then I think that it reveals the heterodox versus the heretic as well. An open denial of the things confessed in the Athanasian Creed, I would say, obviously, we're dealing with a heretic there. And I dealt with this, I think it was maybe in the catalog of testimonies. My brain is blanking on here, but it was just not that many weeks ago here that we were discussing sort of the different heresies that have been confessed again and again with regard to the Trinity. And they tend to come up again and again. And where you deny the Trinity, and so the, one of the examples that we talked about with that you might still see around today are the Mormons. Now, we would call the Mormons, even though they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we would say, you're not of Jesus Christ because you deny the Trinity. You deny that key confession, and so you're a heretic. I don't call Mormons brothers, right? And we don't have to be mean about that. Again, we still just want to reveal what Scripture or bring and say this is what Scripture says is a denial of the Christian faith. 
And so we just let scripture do the speaking, do the confession, right? And we find our unity there. But then likewise, too, as we engage the heterodox that they have a confession of Christ, they have a confession of the Trinity, they have a confession of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for our way of salvation. It gets a little muddled in terms of the way that they confess baptism. Again, I often use another image to talk about this, that we're kind of driving down. I use this with the Reformed. I think I use this in the Saxon Visitation Articles episode. It's like I'm driving down a two-lane highway with the Reformed, and they take an early exit some sometimes, like when it comes to baptism. And I'm like, no, the destination of gospel proclamation, where this all plays out and comes together is right up there ahead. Why are you getting off on that exit? And that's where I would say that a gross oversimplification of this, but that's where I'm dealing with the heterodox. And so it's certainly dangerous, as you laid out really well, that can take us down the road to unbelief. If too many of those spokes start falling out of the wheel, the whole wheel falls apart. And so we want to be careful and we want to guard against that. But the way that we approach that, I think, is from a, a confession of Scripture. Let that reveal, hey, this is false against Scripture. And let our conversations always flow forth from Scripture, which then I think gets us to this other part of this question, this great question, which I think is exactly where the Lutheran confessions, well, they're really born out of the fact that Martin Luther was just called an argumentative monk mm-hmm. and, you know, and kind of brash. And he even confessed himself. Maybe at times I'm too brash. And I often feel a lot of that in myself as well, too. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that does get us into trouble. And maybe I need to be a caged Lutheran or something like that. But they gave me a microphone and a radio show. And so I'm not caged all that well sometimes. <laughs> but uh, uh, at the same time, I, I think that's a part of this question then, too. When is it just a matter of being stubborn or argumentative? And how do we engage that kind of thinking as it relates to dealing with the fact that there's disunity in terms of confession? There's a lack of concord. What are some places that we see that play out? Great. I, I think that gets to the heart of Jim's question and all these questions you've gotten over the years. How do we know, how do we know the difference? The solid declaration addresses this. It says we must steadfastly maintain the distinction, which is what Jim's looking for, I think. Maintain the distinction between unnecessary, useless quarrels and disputes that are necessary. The former should not be permitted to confuse the church since they tear down rather than edify. The latter, when they occur, concern the articles of faith or chief parts, the spokes you were talking about, right? The chief parts of Christian teaching to preserve the truth, false teaching, which is contrary to these articles, must be repudiated. So the Solid Declaration, I was going to say a Solid Declaration does what you just did, but you just did what the Solid Declaration does. And that is, you know, part of that Book of Concord is we, we hand to every single person before they even become a member or a communicant member of Lutheran Church. It's called the Small Catechism, and it has those six chief parts in it. That's where we start. Some people would say, well, no, no, we it's just Christ. Yeah, it is Christ. But these six things are what show us our need for Christ, show us who Christ is, show us what Christ has done, show us how Christ gives us the gifts that we need because we are sinners. So the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Holy Baptism, Confession, Holy Communion, these are those spokes, if you will, that all direct us to Jesus, direct us to the cross and what he's done for us on that cross. Now, in each one of those things, we're going to find between denominations, even within our own congregations, we're going to see some variety And it's not a good variety because there is a truth, but we're going to see some error about, as you mentioned, holy baptism or about the second article of the creed. There's going to be some things that need correcting. There's going to be some heterodoxy, and those things do need to be addressed. I'll tell you, one of the ways, though, this can drive you crazy, and one of the ways I've experienced it as a pastor is occasionally I've had more than just an individual or a family, but large groups from heterodox congregations all come over together to the the parish where I was serving. And I guess this should always be an issue for me, but especially when those large groups come, and especially when I'm in a small congregation, I'm excited because I love having new members. I get excited because I love teaching the scriptures. I get excited about teaching the catechism. But at the same time, a little bit, I'm a little bit nervous because their foundation has not been quite right. And so they may be heading off the road in a couple of areas too soon, like you said. And so a question that I struggled with for a long time, I had a really helpful a circuit visitor that helped me with this. He, I basically asked him, I mean, how much agreement does there have to be in order to bring this person into our fellowship? And I think I think that's sort of the same question that that Jim is asking or, or getting around, except it's from a pastoral point of view. How much agreement does there have to be? 
And it's a good question. I, and I don't know if I have an exact answer except to say, go back to the small catechism because that's where we direct people. Go back to those six chief things, those six main things. Now, again, there's a lot of issues. I'll give you an example of uh, fairly recently adult instruction where the issue of creation, when I was doing the instruction, came up and there were some some discrepancies. We have not completely resolved those things. I did not allow that to keep him from becoming a member of the congregation. We still continue regularly to have conversations about that, and he's happy to do it. That was not something to keep him from becoming a member of our congregation and, and to welcome him to the Lord's table. At least I don't think so. Would there be brothers that would argue with me? Probably so. So this gets tricky, and it's hard work, no doubt about it. Yeah, I think it has to be covered by Christian love. And I've recently engaged an adult new member as well. And I love the way that he put it. He, he was raised in the Baptist church when I came. I noticed he didn't take communion, but he was attending with his wife and so forth. And he told me, well, that's because I'm a Baptist. And I said, well, that's a funny Baptist that comes to the Lutheran church every Sunday. So maybe <laughs> we should have a conversation sometime. It was really great that he did take adult instruction. We went through a lot of things and everything. And I love the way that he framed it. He said, Pastor, as we've gone through this, I don't know that I'm all the way there yet, but I'm willing to keep learning from you. And I'm willing to agree that as you presented it to me, this is what God's word says. And I think that's what we say when we go through the rite of confirmation, confirming our Christian faith before the altar of God, is that we believe that what scripture and the small catechism have taught us to be true. And as sin and the devil and temptation work on us in this broken world, even myself as a pastor, at times I'm afflicted with doubts and I need more information. And we live and wrestle in that tension. And as I recognize that that goes on even in myself, I think one of the things to help us engage this topic then too, is again, I confess at times I'm too brash, kind of like Martin Luther. And, and sometimes maybe I do some offense in engaging others. And maybe again, I need to be a caged Lutheran at times. But what has been helpful for me in the times that I've done better at not being quite as brash and offensive and so forth is when I recognize the tension that is on me at times. And then it, it helps covering Christian love. And then playing in here to just traditional ideas of logic and rhetoric. I mean, what's the whole point of those things historically, but to win people to your side with reason and pathos, right use of emotion, appeals, ethical appeal and things like that, ethos and so forth. I want them to come to the knowledge of the truth, right? Which can only be done and found in Christ and his sure word. And so we need a good bit of humility, which I lack majorly so. But as I recognize my own struggles in that at times, too, where I am once again afflicted by doubts and do I actually have a firm understanding of this? If I can be patient with myself, then again, this is a scriptural idea of how we can be patient with others because the idea is to win them over. And so then we don't come off quite as aggressive and combative when we recognize, look, this is God's truth. He's made it clear. And so we, we're just simply, I don't have to fight. Maybe that's even a more simple way to put what I'm trying to say here is I don't have to fight. I don't have to be brash. I can just simply present the truth and let the Holy Spirit go to work on them. And that's led in a lot more fruitful conversations. And so when you come to the knowledge that this Lutheran confession really is right, and it's not a proud thing, it's just we should all have that assurance of our Christian faith. This really is right. And so I'm just presenting what's true, and I don't have to be combative about it. I don't have to fight for it. You, we're not even trying to, and I know you didn't mean it this way, but uh, we're not even trying to win people over to our side. <laughs> you admitted it. There are times, more often probably than we would like to admit, that we find ourselves contending ourselves with the truth. The truth isn't always easy for anybody to hear or to deal with. But in our more lucid moments, we recognize it's the only sure place to stand is in Christ. And so what we're trying to do is, I mean, I, I think we can approach it that way. When people are struggling, when they don't know everything, we don't have to come after them like we do know everything or like we don't struggle. But instead we say, hey, here's the place to stand if you're struggling. Here's the place to stand if you don't know everything. It's in the presence of Christ who gives forgiveness who reveals the will and the love of God, the Father, to us. So it's not really trying to win people over to our side, even though in my worst moments, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. It's not my side. I didn't create a side. It's the truth that we're seeking. And the example that you gave is exactly like the, the fellow that I was thinking of. 
we're walking together, right? We're walking together because we found a common truth and we're exploring and you may know more of the truth or different aspects of the truth, but we're pursuing that together. So the question is, clearly there's a walking together. And I, I think you can talk about even the, the heterodox person, the uh, person of a, a different confession of faith, a different denomination, and recognize that there's a certain amount of walking together that's going on there as well. In terms of how much to be called a Lutheran, how much to confess our faith together at the Lord's table. Again, that really comes down to, for us, those six things. Luther, in his preface to the large catechism, says about the small large catechism, it contains what every Christian should know. Anyone who does not know it should not be numbered among Christians or admitted to any sacraments. So this is the foundation for us. And I guess folks may not like where we draw the line, but we do pretty clearly draw the line right there with those six things. Yeah, it's our concord. It's what we're talking about on this show today. It is where our concord is found. With just about two minutes left in the show here, where do you want to leave us? Give us your parting thoughts on why concord matters for our concord, our unity within the Christian church today. What I really wanted to end it with was the need for those two things that we mentioned, the formula of concord, the pure beneficial teaching, and also that we not allow contrary teaching to continue. And I wanted to make sure that nobody got the idea that we were promoting, again, being argumentative. And so I kind of wanted to end with the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. Philip Melanchthon writes these words, Paul commands that there should be love in the church in order that it may preserve unity. And I'll just stop there for a moment. Unity is necessary. Our love is necessary in preserving unity. Just as we talked about pure teaching and doctrine. Um, again, these things are never apart from one another. Love is necessary and it is possible to teach the right things and not to love. And we need to always keep that in mind that we're, again, we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. So anyway, he says, Paul commands that there should be love in the church in order that it may preserve unity. Bear with the harsher manners of brethren as there is need and overlook certain less serious mistakes. This must happen or else the church will fly apart into various schisms and hostilities and factions. And then he says, and heresies will arise from the schisms. So the moment that we see division in the church, we need to deal with that in love. We we need to practice repentance and forgiveness because schisms lead to heresies. When there's a break, especially between pastor and laity, it tends to lead to heresy because people turn from the pastor. Even if he was saying the right things, they turn away and they turn to a different teaching. And that can often lead to heresy. Uh, unity cannot last, he says, whenever the bishops impose heavier burdens upon the people or when they have no respect for the weaknesses of the people. The same is true on the other side, though. Integrity in the church is preserved, in a nutshell, when the strong bear with the weak. When the people put up with some faults in the conduct of their teachers, heterodoxy can lead to heresy. And so we want to call out false teaching in the same way a lack of love can lead to heterodox teaching, which can lead to heresy. So no matter how you look at it, this isn't easy. It's a lot of hard work, but it involves obviously clear teaching based on those six chief parts. It's pastors showing respect for the weaknesses of people and it's laity giving some room for error and weakness in their pastors. And that's really at the heart of all of this. Six chief parts and respect for one another. That's an excellent quotation there from the Apology, Article 5. Love and fulfilling of the law is the heading for that article of doctrine. It reflects so well what St. Paul also says. Of course, you brought in Colossians 3 there, but 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I have all truth, but have not love, I'm nothing but a noisy gong. And so like you said, I can speak truth. And again, as I confess myself, at times I fail in that I'm just nothing but a noisy gong if I have not love for my Christian brother. And very well stated there that love, as is our unity, flows forth from God himself, who is love, who is our unity, and is the right confession of truth. You've excellently confessed this for this today. We could go on and talk and talk as you and I could do all the time anyway, but certainly this topic, and it's going to continue to permeate this entire series as we go through why Concord matters for various topics and themes of our Christian life together. Thank you, Pastor David Weiss, for joining us for Concord Matters today and discussing with us why Concord matters for our Christian harmony and unity in the church's gospel confession found in Christ and his word. Thank you so much for that. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.